Hi everyone, Boris here. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I have to tell you about some exciting new job openings that are added to the LogTechies job board. Have you heard of the LogTechies job board? LogTechies is the first hand-curated job board for the field of logistics technology. That's where I post the coolest LogTech jobs at those companies that I currently find the most interesting. Brand new to the board is Bex Technologies from Stuttgart, Germany. Bex is building a logistics platform for the construction industry that helps companies coordinate deliveries to construction sites. I've had CEO and co-founder Leonard Paul on the podcast before, and I know they're going places. Right now, they're hiring for a number of exciting roles, including a CFO, COO, and a head of logistics. Alaiko from Munich, Germany is another new addition to the LogTechies job board. Alaiko offers seamless e-commerce fulfillment for fast-rising online shops and e-commerce brands. The company raised $30 million in a Series A round earlier this year and is now on an ambitious growth trajectory. They are looking to fill a number of sales roles, for example, for junior as well as for seasoned professionals. You should definitely take a look at Alaiko's openings. Aside from Bex Technologies and Alaiko, you will also find exciting roles from TradeLink, Noise Technologies, FanRide, Sender and others. Please have a look and follow the board so you can stay updated on when new companies and jobs get added. You find the LogTechies job board at LogTechies.com. L-O-G-T-E-C-H-I-E-S.com. LogTechies.com. All right, and now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Logistics Drive. I'm your host, Boris Felgendreer, and today's episode is about the ongoing semiconductor shortage. It's been sending ripples across our supply chains for many months now, with no end in sight. The story of what exactly is going on and what products and industries are affected keeps evolving to the point where I feel like I just need someone to really break down the situation for us. So I pinged Richard Barnett, whom I've known for many years. Richard has a very broad and very deep understanding of manufacturing supply chains. He's currently the CMO at SupplyFrame. SupplyFrame was founded in 2003 with a vision of transforming the way supply chain leaders interact with electronic component suppliers, distributors and manufacturers. So spot on for our topic today. But before we get started with today's episode, there's some great news I'd like to share about the Logistics Tribe. I am super excited to be able to announce that Grey Orange has become an official sponsor and partner of the Logistics Tribe podcast. Now, if you have anything to do with e-commerce, logistics, fulfillment and warehouse automation, you probably already know about Grey Orange. And if you don't, I, I think you should. Grey Orange is really known for combining AI-driven cloud software and smart robots, you know, in warehouses and fulfillment centers. The company's been around here in Europe, in my neck of the woods, for a while now, but they're really making a major push into the market right now. I mean, I hear about them everywhere. For example, Active Ants, the Dutch e-commerce logistics provider, has just opened a sort of very new, brand spanking new, state-of-the-art e-commerce fulfillment center in Belgium, and it's full of gray orange robots. And they're working side-by-side side together with humans, and that's really good news ahead of the holiday season. And also, a couple of folks from my network have recently joined the Grey Orange EMEA organization, and um, to me, that's, uh, that's always a good sign. In any case, if you want to learn more about AI-driven e-commerce automation, check out the Grey Orange website. I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, and now we're on to the show. Here comes Richard Barnett from SupplyFrame. Enjoy. 
Hello, Richard. Welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Boris. It's a pleasure to join you. Awesome. I'm glad you made it. Um, Richard, as you probably know, the audience of the Logistics Tribe is probably 100% supply chain logistics professionals. Mm -hmm. It's probably fair to assume that all of those have heard that there's a global semiconductor shortage and crisis going on and going on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And if they're anything like me, they've been monitoring the story for a while now, right? For like a year or even, even 18 months, it's been going on. Right. And if you go back to sort of the early part of the story and look at the predictions of what people said back in the days, everybody assumed that it would be over by now, <laughs> the latest. Mm -hmm. And the story mm -hmm. just keeps going on and keep going on and, and keeps changing and more angles and more nuances come into the picture where I feel like I need someone to give me the crash course on what this whole thing is about. Not for the layman, right? As you would see in a, in a business press where it's always like sort of right. dumbed down in a way where it's like very superficial. I mean, I've, I've read several articles and still I'm not smarter than before. So <laughs> in the context of, of our audience being a supply chain logistics professional audience, but, but we still need somebody who brings it all together. And as I thought about who can I invite, the first person that popped into my mind was you because you have such a strong expertise and experience in everything supply chain, automotive, and now in electronic supply chain. Maybe before we start, just give us a very, very short version of, of your background, then it becomes probably very obvious of why you're <laughs> the perfect candidate that I pinged. Sure, I appreciate that, Boris. I mean, obviously, um, I, I'm also passionate about this issue, you know, in terms of engaging with supply chain professionals, logistics leaders, transportation leaders, et cetera, to understand, you know, what's happening at a little bit deeper level, what some of those root causes are, some of the key trends and dynamics. Yeah. Um, and to your point, you know, just by way of background, I started, uh, you know, getting excited about uh, supply chains and, um, you know, optimization of supply chains and uh, integrated supply chain management back in the late 90s. I actually uh, started working with a company called I2 Technologies, kind of really at the forefront of supply chain management, really as a new category, uh, where you had this kind of convergence of both process and strategy change going on, but also, um, you know, this application of new technologies, right? So at the time, it was around supply chain planning optimization, but later in my career, I worked at companies that focus on different aspects of this challenge, right? Whether it's the B2B integration aspects or how do you have collaborative supply management, working at E2Open, working through a, a channel or working through a you know multi-tier supply chain. How do you have a business network-based approach for visibility and for exception management and for collapsing lead times and reducing inventory buffers? Uh, and then, you know, we also work together at, at GT Nexus uh, and there was a tremendous amount of work around thinking about how do we continue to evolve the notion of you know, logistics integrated more in supply chain and the order management flows and multimodal, uh, you know, visibility. And, and as a community in supply chain, uh, we've just made tremendous progress in many aspects of this over the last, you know, five to six years. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of cool to see it kind of come together in terms of really getting to global, you know, visibility, you know, that's uh, these new, these new platforms. Um, and, you know, but I've always had this passion also for the high tech industry because it was always mm -hmm. one of the earliest to, you know, leverage, outsource contract manufacturing and global logistics providers and be part of that broader globalization trend, particularly with manufacturing in China. Um, and, and that's really been fascinating to watch unfold, but it has also brought a tremendous amount of new challenges uh, to how do you manage and operate with agility, with resiliency, um, you know, in that global supply chain. And I had an opportunity to 
uh, kind of more focused in more recently in direct materials management and, and, and what are those decisions that are made in new product introduction, even before you launch to manufacturing and then sort of activate the new supply chain that you're designing with each product that you're building, right? And I think mm -hmm. folks miss that idea, right, that they're directly tied together. Uh, and I became the chief marketing officer at Supply Frame, which really focuses on uh, particularly the global electronics value chain um, with what we have, what we call this design to source intelligence platform and network, where we're looking at, at um, you know, combining sort of engagement with engineers and supply chain professionals on websites, you know, where they're doing vertical search or community insights. And it's really cool, like taking all this digital exhaust and then doing something with it, you know, having new predictive insights around what's going on with new design cycles and what's the leading indicators of demand, uh, you know, and all these kind of, again, it's a network driven kind of community driven uh, platform approach. Yeah. Uh, and, and then we have SaaS solutions that help companies make better decisions and de-risk particularly product design at the, at the you know, and, and drive resiliency in that stage and then manage those bills and materials those product life cycles all the way through. Um, and so we've really been in this weird position of being like on the front lines of watching yeah. and monitoring exactly what unfolded when COVID hit. So we can talk a lot more about that, but I mean, just to give you a little bit of a, uh, an overview of my background, you know, my passion for this topic, but really more interestingly, just very recently, having this unique front row seat to everything that's been happening. It's been fascinating. Yeah, and also maybe people know the name Supply Frame through the recent headlines that you guys made because you were just recently um, acquired by Siemens, right? The big, gigantic German That's company. right. That's right. We're part of the Siemens family now. Uh, it's very. We're all very excited. I mean, the... Um, we, we entered a process earlier this year, um, you know, and Siemens uh, was really intrigued and interested around the synergies as, as were we, not just within, you know, sort of Siemens portfolio of, of software solutions, really around design, uh, you know, EDA and, and sort of product lifecycle management. Um, many people don't know Siemens as a software company, but they're a substantial software company yeah. uh, in their own right. We joined that digital industry software group. But there's also this interest in, in Siemens globally to understand what we've done at Supply Frame around digital marketplace models, business models, uh, and how they can apply that same learning to, you know, how what they're trying to do to transform, you know, new forms of solutions that are more network and, and marketplace driven uh, for their global customers. And so that's a really exciting opportunity to collaborate uh, with, with the broader Siemens uh, company. Yeah, awesome. Exciting times. So, yeah, well, let's let's jump right in. Let's jump into our crash course here. And um, to, to, to set the stage, so I want to focus most of the time, obviously, on the most acute crisis, you know, uh, exacerbated and started and triggered by, by COVID. Um, I mean, that's obvious, but maybe quickly set the stage and describe to us the situation right before COVID. What was the semiconductor right. market looking like before that? Was it already in a situation where there was more demand than supply? Was it a glut? Was there more supply and demand? Was it balanced? What did the situation look like before shit hit the fan, right. so to speak? Yeah, no, I think that's a really uh, important point because we saw this even before COVID hit, but I think a lot of folks sort of not really close to the overall dynamics in the industry sort of had a false confidence that demand and supply were in alignment. You know, this is a very normal market, you know, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and the reality was there was a pressure cooker, you know, a bomb ticking, you know, in a, in a lot of ways uh, underneath the hood in terms of supply demand match, you know, in the sort of cycles of growth in demand in all these downstream industries, with the actual constrained supply and lead times and commitments that were being made just around foundry and fab capacity, much less kind of the roadmap of semiconductor companies and 
the evolution of, of kind of the high tech industry and value chain overall. Um, you know, and the big story there, right, is just the general electrification and digitization of, of everything. Every, yeah, I mean, everything. Yeah. You know, as consumers, you know, as you know, business leaders in manufacturing, et cetera. I mean, every new product, you, you know, everything from uh, and there was a joke about the chip shortage impacting dog collar, you know, smart collars for, you know, for, yeah, for pet yeah. owners, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was yeah, a big yeah. issue, you know, um, you know, we see, but we see this in smart connected devices and experiences, you know, in, in every industry. I mean, whether it's precision agriculture, where you have harvesters that are, you know, being automatically driven down a specific path based on the optimized weather patterns and satellite imagery, et cetera. You know, and the folks that make harvesters and big ag equipment generally are, are what I call heavy metal. You know what I mean? They, they were, mm-hmm. They're not necessarily electronics geniuses, but this is the way that you differentiate and create new value is digitizing those products and services. I mean, the same, we talk about this, you know, in, in industrial equipment, in medical devices, right? It's not just in consumer electronics and high tech and communications and data centers. And then obviously, right, the center of our discussion is really around automotive where, you know, like passenger vehicle, uh, and trucks, and then even heavy trucks now are increasingly becoming electrified, not just EVs or autonomous driving, but just everything about these, you know, these cars and, and, and trucks uh, are basically computers on wheels. And so yeah. that demand drive, including 5G and telecommunications, you know, which is a really long ramp, but a huge driver of, of, of demand, all of that was about to come online, like anyway, like mm-hmm. regardless mm-hmm. of COVID. Yeah. And you know, while it was healthy for the overall semiconductor industry from a forecast of sales and growth, generally they were still writing a very tight game where they were only committing to new capital capacity when they had a really high confidence, they had forward-looking demand, you know, and they would do this kind of in waves, right? So we have this inherent cyclicality upstream in the electronics value chain, particularly around semiconductor because it's so asset intensive that you just, you know, you've got to raise additional, additional capital. Every new foundry, every new fabs cost generally is increasing 20, 30%, you know, every every year, every technology change and transition. So we already were facing a lot of challenges and we were in the wrong stage of the cycle in the capital expenditure cycle around mm-hmm. semiconductor um, at the same time that COVID was just about to hit. So that's kind of a general setup. Yeah, yeah. And if I understand you correctly, it's it's really hard to get new additional facilities online and, and to ramp up production quickly is a is a is a major challenge, right? So yeah. what you're describing is they're they they're basically constantly out of sync. By the time you made the decision to to ramp up production by the time it comes online, you know, the economic cycle for whatever product may already be on the downslope. So you're always sort of chasing the tail, so to speak. You're always in that in that sort of weird moment where those cycles are out of sync. And that's that's been going on for right. a while, you're saying. Right. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I mean, if you just look at some of the data, right, so an average new fab, um, you know, for, say, ICs and chipsets, you know, for, for these chips that we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on the on the sort of technology area you're in, so level of, of sort of, you know, nanometer level sort of technology sets, right? So you have some wafers, uh, you know, and 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 diodes, I mean, some wafers and, and fab production that is geared towards, um, you know, sensors, et cetera, that, that don't have to be, you know, the, the smallest possible, you know what I mean? And you have the new M1 chipset from for Apple or Intel's new lineup or NVIDIA, uh, and AMD, they're constantly pushing the envelope on the on the smallest, uh, you know, sort of level of lithographic, um, 
you know, printing and, and management of, of integrated chipset design. And that brings along all the semiconductor equipment that's super highly specialized around it, has long lead times to build and is really complicated. Um, and so all of this build mean, means that, you know, to, to bring a new fab online, you know, is somewhere between two to four years. Um, and, you know, you know, you're making a bet on a market that's maybe three years out, right? And so you might be hitting it just right in terms of an inflection point, a new technology cycle coming into place. Or you might get it slightly wrong and you need to repurpose demand and use that capacity for different reasons. So there's a lot of variability around those cycles. Mm -hmm. It's never perfect. And yeah. we were already behind that curve. You know what I mean? Got anyway, it. Right. Okay. And then we fast forwarded sort of the COVID moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the hardest thing to really wrap your head around, understand the fact that, you know, by now you would think like, okay, what's the issue? Like, why haven't you ramped up production? Because this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Why don't you just crank crank it up to level, you know, 11 and, and just take advantage of the situation? But as much as they want to, they, they probably can, right? Because of all the reasons you just described. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into COVID. What happened, you know, during the, sort of the, the, when shit hit the fan during COVID, what what dynamics right. started to play out then? Well, I think this is, this is something as supply chain professionals, right? We're actually pretty close to like the, you know, so the front lines of what just what we were watching happen, right? Because it was very disruptive, very, very quickly, right? So the first wave you saw of COVID as it sort of started in, in China, you know, Wuhan, and then the region, and then China shutting down, responding to it very quickly. And then the ripple effect, basically, as it, as it started to spread, you know, yep. across the Americas, Europe, you know, Africa, and Asia, the rest of Asia. Um, you know, the first wave was that you had production shutdowns, you had you know, production facilities uh, going to lockdown, production start, start, stop, you know, workers being, you know, furloughed, et cetera, just to get a sense of how do we make it more secure, safe? How do we bring production back online? Um, you know, all of that kind of in every area it hit lasted for about 45 days to 60 days at the minimum, right? So we watched China actually manufacturing go offline and come back online mm -hmm. between 30 to 45 days in many key industry and factory areas within China, which is incredibly resilient. I mean, they really were doing yep. absolutely their best to try to contain this thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other big impact is you had everyone go into, uh, you know, work from home or, you know, stay at home orders, right? In, in different uh, major, you know, particularly urban areas, et cetera. Um, and that meant kids weren't going to school and it meant we were trying to figure out how to work from home. And it meant, you know, we had to, you know, use e-commerce and mobile services massive shift like overnight externality right nothing driven by normal organic market anything right, right? Yeah. around the consumption yep. and need demand for um you know work at home equipment you know my my hd camera you know for mm -hmm. for doing you know web conferences was uh you know impossible to find like a, a guy on my team the it lead was just a superstar i have no idea still to this day how he found one for me that was a good proper <laughs> hd level one but he he found one you know And everyone was scrambling. Did you get a promotion right after? Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, just right. magic man. You know, I don't yeah, know how he right. did it, right? He's got his sources. Um, but everyone was in the same boat, right? And we were also taking kids and trying to figure out, oh, my God, overnight, how do we do distance learning? Uh, you know, we need extra laptops. We've got, you know, uh, whole families, you know, in their various days, you know, in some corner of the maybe an apartment, you know, trying to all work from home. Incredibly stressful. And then... You know, you want contactless delivery. Restaurants are shut down. So you have all this massive explosion of e-commerce. And you have a bunch of things that now have no demand, uh, like overnight. So anything that feeds into commercial real estate, into manufacturing, you know, plants that were shut down, and more importantly, 
consumer demand in general for certain things like cars, right? Because no one was driving anywhere, you know, you know, anyone who had plans, uh, maybe to buy a new car, that's a big investment decision, you know, with all the uncertainty, you want to wait, yep. you have no yep. idea what your impact is to your job, your family and everything else. So you've got this, this huge d- demand and mix change that happens overnight where certain areas that were very run rate, very boring, like accessories for laptops, you know, just total run rate demand spiked overnight. And then on the other hand, you had, you know, massive committed forecasts and supply chains that were all geared for a specific maybe seasonality or forecast for the rest of the year, particularly in automotive, just turn off almost immediately, like overnight. Um, and so, you know, what happened was is that you have this huge demand mix change and it's occurring across multiple supply chains, right? So, you know, again, as supply chain professionals, we know that there's a different fast moving consumer goods, you know, speed, velocity, packaging size, you know, uh, you know, distribution network sort of profile, mode profile for transportation, totally different from, you know, what you see in the sort of very repeatable kind of locked in stable capacity and utilization of every lane of every kind of, you know, receiving dock in particularly in automotive, which is really built around just in time, just in sequence, like a continuous flow, yep. you know, material parts, suppliers, et cetera, all the way through final assembly out through a dealer network. All of that got disrupted, uh, you know, very, very quickly. And it had a big, massive, uh, what we call bullwhip effect uh, and acceleration of change uh, that impacted the whole value chain like overnight. Yeah, and what did the automotive manufacturers in particular, because they're particularly hard hit and, and a lot of the story around the semiconductor shortage is focused around automotive because they got they got clobbered, they got hammered, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about what, what their cardinal mistake or what their reaction was that sort of exacerbated their situation. When when demand dropped for automobiles, and then what what happened? What, how did they react, and how did they how did they miscalculate the situation? Right. Well, I mean, I think that the first domino, if you will, to fall was um, generally the OEMs when they saw demand fall off very quickly, and so any kind of local market prediction, wherever they were selling cars through a dealer network, et cetera, immediately said, "Yeah, we're not, we're whoa, you know, demand's falling. You know, we have no." We, we can't even have people on site. You know what I mean? We don't have a safe way for people to preview cars. Uh, you know, people are not online orders even went down immediately, all the early indicators. So what they did was they just immediately decommitted for both their, you know, production schedules, right, on output, mm-hmm. output volume and on their overall committed demand as they aggregated it across their dealer networks. And then they, because they are engineered, the, the supply chain, the automotive supply chain is really structurally engineered to optimize, um, you know, minimal inventory holding yep. and push almost liability for lead time and performance and quality and all those good things upstream at each tier. You have these OEMs, you have these tier ones that kind of build sub-assemblies, whether it's transmission and chassis, mm-hmm. electrical harnesses, or it's in the newer modern uh, you know, systems around mobility and, and you know, computer vision, LIDAR, uh, you know, all of these new technologies, right? They all have specialization at the tier one or at the tier two. Mm-hmm. And then they're buying upstream from either distributors or directly from key suppliers and semiconductor companies. And and they are all built on the forward demand of the OEM. So as soon as that, that demand was decommitted and there's a huge liability associated with holding in the inventory mm. that's of high value that's not committed, mm-hmm. the, the dominoes just ro- rolled back super fast. No one in that chain really, and I'm overly simplifying, but at a high level was incented 
to hold strategic inventory, to hold the extra liability based on the uncertainty. And, and the financial models were very, very difficult for the OEMs to buffer that immediate shock to the system. There's no, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of specific incentive programs or, or you know, by capital budget outlays or long-term contract agreements that are built in the system. That's a shock absorber that allows and incentives for managing this disruption. So it just, it, it just, the ripple effect was massive. It, it yeah. took almost no time for it to hit every, every key player upstream. Um, you know, but the rest of the market wasn't standing still. So it's an interesting, you know, that, I think that's the big sort of early wave that we saw happen from, you know, March of 2020, really, really just keep rolling through even November uh, and December, where you actually saw for the first time the visibility of the chip shortages now impinging on production, right? So that mm-hmm. those first six to eight months were really the interesting window to look at. Yeah, and so so the so they canceled all the orders for semiconductors from the manufacturers in Taiwan and wherever. And what happened to that production capacity that the that the chip manufacturers had produced? They they shifted it to other demand, right? They just gave it away. They um, <laughs> sort of just shifted right. and it went away. Right, right, yeah. So this cannibalization, if you will, right, of that available demand or that order lead time or that supply um, is really interesting because you know, and this is one of those things again that not everyone kind of understands or fully appreciates, right? But the same audio ICs, the same resistors, you know, controllers, diodes, et cetera, that go into a car or light vehicle truck are the same things that go into a PlayStation, uh, hmm. uh, you know, a, um, uh, you know, any, you know, wearables, consumer electronics, um, data centers, et cetera. You know, electronics is one of those really interesting industries where you have this mix of a few very high value, typically like, you know, individually designed components or processors or capabilities, you know, like, even displays maybe right that are done in partnership with a couple key lead suppliers but the majority of what you're purchasing assembling and designing into a pcb board or to a to an assembly um is coming from standard components Mm -hmm. and and we track for example over 600 million standard components and we look at their risk rank we look at their life cycle we look at their real-time inventory you know uh, availability lead time pricing changes and all of these form fit function equivalents, right? So there's oftentimes a lot of components that can be built by one or more suppliers, or there's parts that are sort of slightly different, but can kind of be used in the same design if they're designed in correctly. Um, And that's the thing, right? Is as soon as that downstream demand for automotive decommitted, and you saw the spike in the need for, you know, everything tech at home, basically, and all the, you know, indirectly all the mobile services you know you know internet-based services now for data centers etc now they're spiking that all consumed available inventory that was the same inventory the same products the same parts and same capacity that generally was being committed by either the oems or their tier one suppliers yeah and probably even worse um the situation that as much as the automotive manufacturers are dependent on the chip manufacturers, it's not really the other way around, right? So the the chip manufacturers don't really need the automotive market as much. I mean, they they need it, and there's a lot of a lot of volume goes into that market. But the the other part that you're describing, everything else that's not automotive, is a much bigger client base, a much larger volumes for the chip manufacturers. If I understand correctly, right? Yeah, I mean that's the I, I sometimes refer to it as the tale of two cities, right? That the you know the automotive value chain is sort of split between heavy metal, generally speaking, mm. and like, you know, super fast clock speed, 
you know, uh, electronic design, digital services, right? And, um, you know, the automotive industry is sort of geared for the OEMs feeling like they've got a tremendous amount of leverage mm -hmm. on the spend and the lead times and production of heavy metal part of their supply chain. And yeah. they do, yeah. right? You've got these very long-term relationships from everyone yep. from, you know, engine manufacturers, transmission alternators, you know, uh, you know, even tire manufacturers, right? I mean, just locked in, you know, Bosch, mm -hmm. Conti, et cetera, in Germany with all the major German OEMs. I mean, that's a, it's a super uh, integrated, you know, sort yep. of success the criteria. Time. These yeah. companies are very locked in. Yep. In electronics, that's not the case at all. The clock speed on the technology lifecycle and components, you know, is, is 3x, 4x faster than the life, the life cycle of a lot of these sort of major heavy metal key components and systems that are put into a, a life cycle of a, of a, you know, an automotive program family, let's say a platform for five to seven years, right? And a consumer electronics could be 18 months, you know, or even less, right? So you've got this massive shift in time. The other big, big issue is, is that automotive OEMs, the automotive value stream, not for without good reason, want the highest quality parts and components, the highest reliability at the lowest cost. Right, because they are such a mature industry, they optimize for cost all the time. But they they don't want to get you know cost trade off to quality or reliability. They have very high expectations, right? Yeah, I mean some some of it is is, is governed by law, right? I mean some some components you yes. just can't compromise yes. on. It's one thing if your PlayStation breaks down is the other part if your right. whatever your airbag or something doesn't function. You know, so right. the quality standards. No, are it's different. true. You got yeah. you, you've got consumer you know uh, you know risk. Uh, you know, you've got these are regulated industries. To your point, yeah. by every you know major. Um, sort of, uh, you know, authority, you know, sort of domain, right? Whether it's at a regional level or a country or the state level, right? You know, all, all there's highly, highly regulated. It's true of medical devices as well. It's very similar. Um, so there's a high cost to compliance. They want the lowest cost of the, at the highest level of reliability. And they have the lowest relative volumes for almost anything else that's being built. So like, just look at the new iPhone 13 launch, right? You know, the, the you know, you're, you're the projected unit volume sales is in the hundreds of millions, right? Mm -hmm. um, for any new, the most popular car platforms, light truck platforms, say a Ford one, you know, F-150 in the United States, for example, or many of the Toyota, Honda, et cetera, you know, sort of products globally, um, you know, maybe they'll hit 100,000, you mm -hmm. know, for that, for that product model type, you know, in mm -hmm. a year, right? Or the life cycle maybe is max 200,000, right? It's, it's one tenth to one one thousandth of the total top line volume. And so if you're competing for, <clears throat> you know, I want allocated capacity and lead time. And by the way, I want the lowest cost. And by the way, I want the highest level of reliability. And it may include you in the liability of these downstream uses, right? If your component fails, then maybe you're on the hook, right? For a failure in the car. Um, so I'm very expensive to do business with. Yeah. In this demand shift change, who loses there, right? Where are you going to prefer, yep. right, to shift your capacity? You're gonna, you're gonna shift it around. I mean, you know, they don't want to totally turn it off because they don't want to lose yeah. any of that sure. valuable business because it's a really, really important part of their business model. And key semiconductor companies have somewhere up to 40, 50 percent of their total demand generally sourced from automotive. I mean, it's highly concentrated, right? But you lose out when it's when it's an open market dynamic. Um, and it's really, you know, it's really a story of industry versus industry, not even company versus company, you know what I mean? And, and it's a story yeah. of multi-tier value chains that, you know, where incentive alignment for liability and for lead time commits and everything else 
is stress tested. And that's exactly what happened during COVID is we saw all of the faults in the chain, you know, yeah. all the fragility, all of the lack of incentive alignment, um, you know, uh, just get exposed in a big way. And the automotives got hammered, right? I mean, there's not a single automotive company that didn't have to hold production and didn't, you know, suffer year-end results and, and bottom line That's is, right. is affected in every... I mean, even to, I think, just a couple of days ago, I heard that Volkswagen is still impacted. They still have to cut back expectations and production hold and all kinds of stuff everywhere, not a yeah. single one. Or is there one? Am I missing one? Is there Was there somebody that was in a better position for some reason or another or was just got lucky or were they all equally hit? What about Tesla, for example? Right, right. So I think Tesla's a good one to look at. Any of the pure play EV companies, I think was one of the most interesting areas to look at early on because they weathered the storm pretty well versus the other OEMs. Hmm. And I think Toyota was the other one that's interesting because it looked like they were going to not be impacted they sort of survived the first wave of impact on production schedule shortfalls etc that really started in november and they just a month ago announced that nope that finally caught up to them mm -hmm. you know they're, they're projecting 40 reduction in production volumes over the next 12 months um you know i just market others that you know track the automotive industry estimate that there's upwards of 80 to 100 billion dollars of of you know new purchase sales that uh is lost uh you know because of the component chip shortage just in the first 12 to 18 months. And it's unbelievable. Yeah, so Richard, and, and one of the things that is obviously also very important is this regional concentration of of the manufacturers of these of these chips, right? So that's right. The big elephant in the room is this TSMC, right? This this Taiwanese uh, chip manufacturer. Talk to me about where this supply chain is sort of concentrated very locally in the geopolitics that come into play. I think that's a very important element as well here. It is. It is. And we've seen that the geopolitical tension and thinking around this, like, you know, become more of a of a um, of a central topic for, you know, discussion, um, both in the United States and in China, but also just globally, you know, across Germany, across, uh, you know, Japan, Korea, et cetera. Like it's it's across the board. Um, so let's just let's just kind of have an overview here again, crash course. Um <laughs> You know, about 60% of global semiconductor capacity is really sourced through what's called, you know, the foundry or fab providers. Um, mm -hmm. There's about 40%, which is provided through what's called IDMs or integrated device manufacturers. And that used to be the norm. So what I mean by an IDM is a company like Texas Instruments or Intel that has their own foundry and fab capacity, their own manufacturing capacity. Mm -hmm. And in those uh, foundries are kind of very purpose built for managing the mix of, um, you know, components, uh, chips, et cetera, that they're, you know, building, uh, including kind of semi-custom chipsets for some customers or, or applications, uh, as well as very more general purpose uh, processors, whether that's, you know, um, you know, microcontrollers or, you know, integrated circuit uh, design, uh, you know, IC chipsets uh, that are generally used in in different downstream applications. So um, when we look at TSMC, they're the largest of the foundries and, and the majority now of uh, semiconductor companies, early startups, et cetera, are what we call fabless, which means they design the chips, um, you know, they manage, you know, the commercial go to market, the brand, et cetera. Um, they have their own engineering teams, um, but, but they basically don't manufacture the chipsets themselves. They have both the foundries and then the, um, you know, the actual, Uh, fabrication process, including um, end tests and assembly and packaging, all go through third parties. Um, sometimes that's one lead foundry. Sometimes that's a multiple, you know, key players in that chain. Um, and and the companies that have, you know, 
where that capacity is expanded outside of Taiwan, where TSMC has about 80% of their, 90% of their employee base, 80% of their, their total capacity is really in mainland China, Korea, and then in, in new parts of the United States, for example. So you, you do see a slow diversification of fab and foundry location capacity, but the main concentration points for both semiconductor equipment that's used for fabrication for these foundries, as well as the foundries themselves, is predominantly in either Taiwan, mainland China, um, you know, and then and then it kind of diversifies out from there. traditional fabs uh, and foundries that have been located in Singapore, uh, the United States and in, in, in different parts of Europe. Um, but that's really where you, you know, you see this high concentration and you see this emerging tension between um, particularly United States and the West and uh, in China, because what's also been happening in parallel, but also COVID, it was an accelerator of this was that, you know, China, you know, has, you know, has really increasingly looked at, like many countries, the need for uh, their own chipset design capability, uh, their own, you know, access to semiconductor equipment, et cetera, not just for commercial reasons, right, to support Chinese manufacturers, or in the case of the United States, U.S. semiconductor companies or, or U.S. manufacturers that rely on semiconductor. Um, but it's also, you know, challenged this idea of, export control and, you know, how do we kind of protect our industry base? Um, how do we form new public-private partnership, industrial policy strategies? In China, that's that's kind of very normal with how they, you know, each five-year session, they, they create a new five-year plan, sets out broad goals, uh, you know, each each of those five years uh, and, and really helps to structure investment and prioritization. And, and China just completed that five-year plan right before going into COVID. And one of the key announcements was that the strategic interest that they have to uh, you know, develop and expand their overall semiconductor design and, 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 and manufacturing base uh, to really protect and have their own, you know, kind of uh, limit their, their dependencies on the outside. Um, and then Taiwan, which is potentially under dispute in terms of its relationship to mainland China, et cetera, falls right squarely in the middle of that conversation because Taiwan is outsized and it's important to the global electronics value chain, mostly because of TMC, but also UMC. Um, and it's been its foundry capacity and technical know-how and everything that goes with, you know, the expertise over 20, 30 years uh, is concentrated in Taiwan. So, you know, that has really shined a spotlight on the geopolitical and fragility or concentration uh, issues that, um, you know, were, were exposed again, you know, and you saw, you know, gosh, I remember reading reports in, you know, November and December, for the first time ever, you had U.S. government, uh, you know, Commerce Department, uh, you know, German, you know, uh, ministries, you know, et cetera, coming flying into Taiwan to broker negotiations with TSMC to advocate <laughs> yeah. for the needs of their specific companies. And, um, you know, it, it's almost just crazy that you think a geopolitical pressure like that would actually shift anything you know what i mean overnight you know what i mean because this is this is yeah. there's no easy moves here it's not like people are hoarding chip supply you know what i mean it's just the entire you know capacity of the entire industry is out you know <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's fully utilized so yeah it's fascinating europe, yeah europe is a, it's a it's an interesting interesting keyword here where, where is europe in all of this i mean how dependent are we here in europe i think mm -hmm. somewhere in the range of less than 10 percent is actually produced here in europe that's a yeah. that's a dramatic dependency on yeah <laughs> on foreign foreign countries and foreign supplies like what's going to that's shift right. there what's going to happen there what's your prediction there 
Well, I mean, I, I think there's different perspectives, right? Uh, I think one is, you know, um, you know, the EU allows for the aggregation of some, you know, uh, you know, national level interest and the faction level regional interest to be represented and advocated for in different forums. Um, you know, whether that's in trade agreements, whether that's in, uh, you know, again, industrial policy sort of preference. Uh, we saw that in aerospace and defense, very natural that you have that kind of clustering and support because if it's, it's about national or regional security, I think we're going to see more of that mindset shift into commercial semiconductor applications upstream. Because again, going back to this, you know, the, the setup conversation, many of the same chipsets and components that are used in automotive are also used in aerospace and defense and used in, in, in you know, uh, you know, national uh, defense agency spending, right? And new design of either weapons or, you know, radar or monitoring systems, et cetera, all is is sharing from the same upstream supply pool. So there's this, there's this double down sense that we need to protect um, and have our, either our own regional capacity or somehow have new forms of long-term agreements where we can negotiate and manage and have visibility to that risk and, and that, those available supply. Now, up to this point, I don't think those issues were really, I mean, they were on the radar screen of, of everyone. It's not like, um, you know, generally speaking, um, either, you know, commerce departments or ministries of trade or, or those within defense, um, you know, we're unaware of the dependency and reliance on electronics, but generally is very indirectly supported through, uh, you know, investments in, you know, in, in higher education or, you know, supporting, um, you know, regional tech centers or, uh, you know, it's kind of indirect support, right, for the R&D stage and for, you know, developing a rich ecosystem uh, mm -hmm. for either design or for the application of these, uh, these, these products. Now we're really looking for the first time at, um, where are the sources of supply? Where are the locations of these of these foundries and fabrication centers? What risk is associated inherently with the lo those locations? And it's not, by the way, just geopolitical interests. It's also weather. I mean, as a quick sidebar, one of the biggest issues yeah. we watched last year that wasn't in the news was, you know, TSMC's access to water because the water is very intensively used in, in foundry production, fabrication, and the the um, you know, the, this, the sort of stockpiles of, of, of water aquifers, you know, co-located next to these major foundry locations what it's, was at its lowest point ever recorded because of two years of sort of less than, you know, expected typhoon rainfall, you know, absorption. Uh, mm -hmm. And so luckily the typhoon season generate just enough water to sort of keep everything on track. But that could have been the next part of the story was a drought in Taiwan disrupting the global supply chain, regardless of COVID. You know, that would have been an another issue. close so, call. Yeah. Yes, another close call, right? In this whole story. So anyway, it's just it, it and is then, really. And, and on top of that, they're they're sitting on top yeah. of a fault line, right? On, a, on top of an yes. earthquake fault line, so it, they're also yeah. at yeah. risk the for the ring of fire, right? I mean, the ring of fire, we saw that yeah. in Japan, but the ring of fire is, is you know Taiwan and you know and rest of parts of Asia are on the same you know set of risk factors for uh, volcanic activity, for earthquakes, for you know underwater earthquakes, and etc. So it's it's. Um, it's, there's a lot of risk factors to look at here. Yeah, just to going back to our preferred automotive industry conversation here, what what are some of the major learnings that the industry will take away from this crisis? What are some of the major changes that you predict will, will happen as a <clears throat> consequence of what we've seen in the last <clears throat> 18 months or so? Well, you know, you've seen some really interesting forward-looking announcements for those OEMs that are sharing what their plans are internally. We have kind of the visibility, some of those internal plans and evolution. Um, but it's interesting just to see what's in the public domain, right? So you've got 
Ford spinning this into maybe this is the opportunity, particularly in the U.S., for the market to shift to, uh, you know, build to order, right? Where you just go into a dealer and you select what you want to order and then you wait five weeks and get delivery shipment. Now, that's much more common in Europe, what you're familiar with. But, you know, that's partly a Well, if it was five weeks, it would be okay, but it's typically much longer than, right, if you do it that way? It's, yeah. But in the future, they're hoping, right, that they get to more normal lead times. And then they're they're saying like, look, why do we go back to giving allocation to dealers, you know, of 100 cars a month, maybe we do 15, 20, right? And then we just take the rest of that, you know, uh, you know, as, as individual orders. Now, I don't think, you know, US consumer preference is going to make that model work. But theoretically, for the first time, You've seen the U.S. automotive OEMs talk about how this is a viable strategy where for years and for many different pressures in the dealer network, et cetera, that was considered unthinkable, right? You know, so that's interesting, mm -hmm. right? You got GM just coming out recently and talking about how, you know, they're rethinking how they they manage, um, you know, long-term supply planning, you know, component sourcing, their their design teams, and they're, and they're really, because there's silos everywhere in these OEMs around how those teams work together both by geography, by department, you know what I mean, et cetera. Mm. Um, and, and they're very typically bureaucratic and slow moving. And, and so they've got to transform themselves internally and really rethink, okay, where is the internal collaboration and where is the shared intelligence need to happen? So if we see an issue like this emerging, how do we get ahead of it? How do we reduce our response time from weeks or months to days, right? And that's mm -hmm. a really interesting goal and, and perspective and it's coming very top down from sea level you know board level discussions etc because literally they've, they've had to write off you know x billion of us dollars or euros over the last few months right i mean nothing yeah. more could be more important right now but i think structurally that's where we're going to see the more interesting like shift over time is this you know movement away from just in time and just in sequence is always good all the time, right? I think there's this notion that you need to sort of segment and understand, you know, how many internal supply chains do you actually have? It's not one monolithic supply chain, right? The lead time, mm -hmm. the just in sequence for painting, for, you know, loading a transmission and an engine, you know, on the assembly line, that's great, right? And you can get to stay ahead of it. But for components, it's a different story, right? So how do we organize ourselves? How do we have shared visibility, commercial agreement control, and this is typically called in procurement or sourcing, you know, a notion of directed by where I'm telling you buy from commercially, buy from this semiconductor supplier, but I'm going to negotiate a long-term agreement with that supplier and pre-negotiate the price or cost mm -hmm. uh, versus a kind of a turnkey. I just want visibility of what you're buying on my behalf and what the updated lead times are because it impacts me, even though you need to buy it, own it, and take the margin gain and risk associated with the cost associated with that. We're moving into a model where, you know, increasingly we need shared visibility around design and the design chain, and then link that into the shared visibility of what's happening in sourcing and supply chain, particularly managing, you know, the balance between cost, quality, and risk, you know, and the economic incentives around, you know, how do you judge success of a procurement and sourcing team or how do you judge success of a, of a new design team needs to come into alignment. And, and I've found that that's, you know, hard work in so many mm -hmm. companies because there's so much inertia to not roll down and look at those changes and implement them. There's a tremendous amount of change management, particularly in a lot of automotive companies that are very stable and mature in their business processes. You know, sometimes these groups and organizations have been in place for 20, 30 years, right? So how do you... Right rethink all of this. And I think that that's, 
really an interesting challenge, but opportunity for a lot of the leaders in automotive OEMs themselves. Um, and fi my final comment would be, you know, what we're doing at Supply Frame is an example, I think, of what is really the keys to the future. And it builds on what we talked about earlier, which is this wave of innovation that's happened around the near-term supply chain, the final mile, right? The visibility of everything that's from order to, you know, uh, shipment to intermediate receipt, you know, and inventory, right? We've got a lot better about, you know, linking together, you know, networks of logistics, uh, 3PLs, providers, et cetera, and then linking that to my, you know, my order systems and my inventory supply chain planning systems for just-in-time or VMI, et cetera, these models. We've made great progress there. The next big wave, right, you know, that links to a lot of the same, you know, thinking, right, networks, and it's not about my enterprise data, it's about sharing visibility and control across these different business partners. That next wave is really going to be about shared visibility across contract manufacturers or tier one suppliers and external design teams all working with a single source of truth around what's the change in risk what's the you know the the longer lead time uh visibility that we have now to supply capacity cost drivers etc and so that we're, we're we're synchronizing and trying to respond to that as much as possible because there is this opportunity to get smarter, faster, and to reduce the bullwhip effect of just the demand propagation signal challenge, just creating massive variability in, in, in supply lead times. In general, we've got to get better and collapse that variability as we work through the structural impact of what's happening right now. There's just very limited degrees of freedom today, but over the next two to three years, that will free up. Yeah, super interesting. So maybe as a last point, I would love to get your predictions for what's going to unfold first across the next 12 months. I know it's difficult. Predictions are always ripe with um, uncertainty. That's just the nature of the beast. Um, so just your predictions for the for the next year, how this whole thing will unfold and how it will solve itself. And then maybe also like a broader outlook, maybe for the decade even. I think that's a great question, Boris. And, and, and as you say, it's always, there's no crystal ball. It's always very difficult to make these sort of forward-looking uh, predictions. But the one area I can make some confidence is that we we actually are tracking what the true long-term lead times are because of the 26 weeks to 35, you know, 40 week lead times on, you know, just generally new chips that, you know, are going to be ordered and going through the fab, you know, process all the way through, right, the value chain. We, we actually can see that the constraints are going to extend into at least the first half of 2023. But mm -hmm. the pattern that we're seeing, yeah, and it's it's much longer. I think the market is just catching up to that reality right now. Um, you know, I just market, uh, you know, uh, Alex Partners, other analysts that cover the automotive industry just recently have updated their forecast for, you know, overall volume of vehicle productions, you know, 2022 kind of outlook in 2023. And they've revised everything down and and the total opportunity cost of lost sales has now been estimated has gone from 100 billion to over 200 billion and that's just an automotive right it's not including consumer electronics and all these other related industries so i think that the overall outlook is the, this is not going away anytime soon uh this is a broad-ranging highly interconnected impacting multiple industries kind of effect that we're going to see in kind of a wave approach. So it's not like a one-time event right. that then just gets resolved. It's going to kind of, you know, have these, these sort of, you know, strange, it'll, it'll shift in terms of what key sub-commodities are being impacted. It'll shift in terms of what industries or sub-assemblies or key suppliers are being impacted. 
Um, and then it'll have, you know, and, and it's just the fragility in the market is then allowing for other factors now to make a big difference. So, you know, whether, you know, looking at the energy crisis in China, for example, you know, uh, understanding the next typhoon season in Taiwan that might impact TSMC, you know, the overall logistics carrier, you know, network, the, you know, ocean, uh, you know, port congestion, all these issues will stabilize, but the compounding of those different factors makes it also really difficult to, you know, again, crystal ball time, you know, really predict. I think the the takeaways are interesting. I think this is a unique moment. I don't think this is just another Sendai, you know what I mean, impact, you know, where we just sort of had to recover and then, uh, you know, we're good again. You know, this is something where there's a rebalancing of thinking around the trade-off between, you know, just in time or, you know, VMI pull based strategies that, you know, are balancing, you know, the lowest level of inventory possible in a network to a new strategy that says, hey, let's rethink where do we have strategic buffers? You know, how do we have long term agreements with key suppliers? How can we pool inventory and reduce the risk, you know, uh, you know, and have that flexibility to kind of decide what key components or key, uh, you know, key elements of supply need to be pooled? and shift that in and out, you know what I mean, as, as a strategic buffer. I think that flexibility in, in, in the supply chain is going to be really important. And that has interesting implications for any logistics and transportation sort of, you know, supply chain network design professionals and teams. Um, you know, it, there, there really is a new openness to like take a fresh look at the network, you know, re, re look at the trade-off between, uh, you know, where you're pooling inventory, what, you know, multi-mode sort of strategies do you have? It's not about lowest cost anymore now. It's, it's, it's this really interesting dynamic where you have to really balance cost, risk, and lead time dynamically. And, you know, any assumptions around stable lead times and key supply markets has kind of gone out the window. So any, any planning system that has static lead times, you know, absolutely needs to be, you know, updated and reviewed more dynamically. Um, you know, and, and I think that, this balancing of, you know, looking at budgets for like sort of expedite costs, you know, for, for part shortage, you know, sort of expedite shipments is not like this sort of exceptional thing that we try to minimize. It's now becoming a primary mode of inbound fulfillment. Uh, and so that actually creates a lot of flexibility where teams have been under a lot of pressure from cost optimization perspectives to now actually look at flexibility and agility in their transportation logistics network, not just you know, trying to move everything from air to ocean and call it good. You know, that's just not going to work in this market. So I think I think those are the implications. Richard, awesome conversation. Uh, I'm so glad I invited you for this crash course and everything semiconductor shortage related. I, I, I know I made the right pick. Fantastic. Thanks for that crash course. I, um, I very much appreciate it. I hope our audience does too. Thank you so much for, for the opportunity. It's a critical issue. It's fascinating. Uh, it's challenging. Uh, you know, I, I think we just need to keep, you know, sharing insights and, and new thinking because it, you know it's uh this is not business as, yeah. as usual at all you know across across the world and you know across every function within supply chain so i think it's all about you know taking our best thinking and, and uh you know challenging our assumptions and, and trying to get more agile more resilient you know across the board yeah fingers crossed yeah richard thanks again for being on the program talk to you next time thank you so much boris all right that was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Richard Barnett from SupplyFrame. I hope you enjoyed this crash course in the current semiconductor shortage. If so, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgentreer. Until next time. <laughs>